Good evening. This is Patrick Donahue. We appreciate you listening to Bible Crossfire every week at this same time. Of course, we emphasize on Bible Crossfire abiding in the teaching of Christ because 2 John verse 9 says, Whosoever transgresseth and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. And you can't be saved without God. The only way we're going to be saved is through the mercy and grace of God. So unless we're abiding in the teaching of Christ, we don't have God, we can't be saved. All these preachers and churches out here are teaching different things. Most of it does not conform to the teaching of Christ. So those who believe and practice such things, even though they claim to be believers in Christ, they claim to be Christians, they're not going to be saved because they're not abiding in the teaching of Christ. When will we learn what John eight thirty one and 32 says? If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. Jesus is speaking there. We're only a true disciple of Christ if we continue in his word. And if we do that, we shall know, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Verse 32, talking about being made free from sin. So only the truth, the truth of God's word will make us free from sin. False religious te- teaching will not make us free from sin. Matthew from Texas, go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Hello, this is Matthew Rosie calling, and I have a two questions that I wanted to know. Why do we meet on the first first day of the week, and why do we sit? Okay, those are two very good questions. Matthew, do you want to hang up and listen to my answer? Or do you want to hang on and uh, and, and um, maybe have a follow-up after I'm done? Hold on. You hang on then. I'm going to start with your second question first because I think it relates back to what a couple of people called in the last two or three weeks about, and that is, why do we sin? Well, James 1, verses 13 through 15 answers that. James 1, 13, Let no man say when he is tempted... I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So, the Bible teaches the reason we sin is because we're drawn away of our own lust, our own desires, we're tempted. We succumb by choice. We're not forced. By choice, we succumb to that temptation, and then we sin. And, of course, when we sin, we bring that brings forth death. The wages of sin is death. Notice this passage starts out by saying that God does not tempt us. He cannot, he cannot tempt anybody, neither tempteth he any man. He cannot be tempted. So it's, sin is all on us. When we sin, that's because we make a choice to sin. It is of our own volition. Now, the reason I say it has something to do with people calling in the last two or three weeks, people have called in, uh, for example, Phil from Michigan, he called in and basically said, well, but we know that children sin, Uh, we see them get angry, and since everybody sins is the basic idea, the basic argument, since everybody sins, that must mean we're born with a sinful nature, or otherwise called by the Calvinists, total depravity. Or the Catholics call it that we inherit the original sin of Adam. We inherit this original sin. It's kind of like you inherit the color of your eyes. You inherit this sin from Adam. You're then totally depraved. You have this sinful nature. And by sinful nature, this is something that you inherit. And that sinful nature means that you can't help from sinning. 
But that theory makes this passage a lie. Because not only does, does the Bible not teach that God cannot tempt us, that theory says that not only does he tempt us, but that he in effect forces us to sin by creating us with this sinful nature so that we can not help from sinning because we inherit this sinful nature from Adam. But this passage says that the reason we sin is because we're tempted by our own desires and we succumb to that temptation and we sin. It's not because we have some sort of sinful nature that we inherited from Adam. The Bible teaches the exact opposite of that. The exact opposite. So the caller last week, I think Phil said, if since everybody sins, that proves that we must be born with this sinful nature. That is, we can't help but sin. But that won't work. Because think about this. Adam and Eve sinned. Why did they sin? Even the Calvinists don't think that Adam and Eve were born with original sin inherited. Or this total depravity inherited. Or this sinful nature inherited. Even the Calvinists would admit that Adam and Eve are born completely innocent. That they did not inherit this so-called sin nature. This total depravity. This original sin. Yet, why did Adam and Eve sin? It couldn't be because they had the sinful nature, because even the Calvinists admit they didn't have a sinful nature. They're completely innocent. They sinned because they were tempted, and they succumbed to the temptation, not because they were forced to, not because God created them in such a way that they couldn't help but sin. That's the position that everybody is born uh, as a, a sinner in the sense that they can't help but sin. They inherited the original sin of Adam. No, Adam and Eve were completely innocent. Everybody agrees that, yet they sinned. So that proves that the reason people today sin, the reason all of us sin, is for the same reason that Adam and Eve did. Not because they inherited sin in any way. Not because they have some sort of sinful nature where they can't keep from sinning. That they inherited that. That they were born with that. So that they can't help from sin. No, we sin for the same reason Adam and Eve did. They were completely innocent. They were tempted. And they succumb to the temptation, they sin. And this passage teaches us the same for us. The reason all of us sin is not because we inherit some sort of sinful nature so that we can't help from sinning. The reason all of us sin is because we're tempted and we succumb to the temptation and then we sin. We're tempted, we succumb to the temptation, and then we sin. I'm going to go ahead and get into Matthew's second question and then I'm going to try to take a call. I want to look at one passage relating to Matthew asking us why we meet on the first day of the week. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Let's read that. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Now this passage is talking about the collection. Anybody that's ever been to church knows about collections. That's what churches do. I'm not trying to criticize them because this verse talks about having a collection. But notice what day of the week they were commanded this church to do the collection on. First day of the week. Now last week we were talking about how that we're not under the Old Testament law, not under the Sabbath anymore, but we're under the New Testament law. If we were still under the Old Testament law and the Sabbath, you would think this passage would command that the churches do their collection on the seventh day of the week, which is the Sabbath. But because Colossians 2 mentions the Sabbath specifically as one of the laws that have been nailed to the cross, 
blotted out and taken out of the way, Colossians 2, 14 through 17, we see from that passage we're not under the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week law anymore. Instead, this church was commanded to do the collection on the first day of the week. This is one of the reasons why churches today meet on the first day of the week, not the seventh day of the week, because the New Testament gives us this command to have the collection on the first day of the week. That's one of the main reasons. Now, we'll get back to the first day of the week question after we take our second call. Bob from Texas, go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Uh, yes, sir. In, in Sunday school class this morning, we were talking about Israel, the nation of Israel and all that. And one guy came up and said, well, you do know that the Jews are going to be given a second chance when Jesus comes back. And I, I've never read anything about that in the Bible like that. Do you, do you have anything you can say about it? And I'll get off the air and just listen to what you have to say. Thank well, you. Bob, before, before you go off the air, let me mention yes. something to you. The Jews and everybody else, Gentiles included, are getting a second and third chance every single day of their life. Do you see I what I'm saying? I agree with every, that. Every single individual Jew who say they remain a Jew religiously, which means they believe in the Old Testament law but not Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, they're getting a yeah. chance every day of their life to hear the gospel and change their mind and become a Christian. So not only are they getting a second chance, they're getting a thousand chances. But... Yeah, once yeah. a once once a person dies, Bob, then they've lost all chances. Revelation fourteen thirteen says, "Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth." So, we don't get a second chance after we die. Once we die, that's it. But as long as these Jews, Gentiles too, are still alive, they can have as many chances as they want to accept the gospel. Follow what I'm saying, Bob? Yeah, I see. I see what you're saying, but they they seem to think that. When Jesus comes back, you know, in his second coming, somehow they're they're going to be given a chance that the Gentiles were not. And I, I just totally disagree with that, but I didn't have any way to back it up. You know, let me read this passage in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10, about the second coming of Christ. It says, but the day of the Lord, and this whole context is talking about the second coming of Christ. So that's what it's talking about. It says, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. And the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So, Bob, when Jesus comes back, at that moment, that's the judgment day. The earth is going to be burned up. And so nobody's going to get another chance because that's going to be the end of the world. Everybody is going to be, it'll be what Revelation fourteen thirteen is talking about. Their fate will be sealed when Jesus comes back. So they got as many chances as they want right now. But when Jesus comes back, their fate will be sealed. So everybody needs to make sure at all times that we're ready for the second coming of Christ. Because if he comes tomorrow yeah. and you're not a Christian, you're going to be lost and there's nothing you can do about it. So does that answer your question, yeah. Bob? When Jesus comes yeah, back... Uh, yeah, I believe, there's... The exact, I believe the exact same thing. I just uh, was kind of, you know, was trying to figure out where he got the idea that, you know, they would be given that chance. Because I, I, I firmly believe that when Christ comes back, that's the end of the world as we know it. And uh, if you're not saved, then, then you're lost. And that's all there is to right. it. So they're not going to get any more second chances after that, after Jesus comes back. That's the final analysis. Bob, thanks for your call. All right. Well, I appreciate you. Yeah, have a good – Bob, Keep continue to listen to the program. Hey, Matthew, you got some follow-up? Yes, I love you. And I would like to thank you again for answering 
my two grad statements. Yep, Matthew, another passage I was going to turn to regarding your question about the first day of the week is Acts 20, verse 7. And that text says, And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued to speech until midnight. And so, Matthew, this says the disciples came together on the first day of the week. What does it say they came together to do, Matthew? To break, to break bread. Okay, and what do you think, what does the breaking of bread refer to here? His body. Yeah, okay. But but his body, and how do we remember his body and his blood? What do we do to remember that? As a bread pretends its body, as a cup pretends its blood. Right, so you're talking about the Lord's Supper or the communion, aren't you, Matthew? Yeah. So this text says that disciples came together on the first day of the week to break bread, that is to eat the Lord's Supper, have communion, and then Paul preached to them. So, Matthew, if we want to follow the Bible to the best of our ability, because we love Jesus and we respect him, so we want to follow him to the best of our ability, we're going to try to follow this verse. What are we going to come together as a church to do on the first day of the week, if we're following this verse? Break bread. And and the breaking of bread refers to what again? It's a body and it's blood. The Lord's Supper, right? Right. The communion. So we're going to come together on the first day of the week to have the Lord's Supper and to have preaching. And if we're going to follow this verse diligently, Matthew, how often is the congregation going to come together to have the Lord's Supper and have preaching? Every Sunday morning. Every Sunday. It it doesn't say morning necessarily, but it says upon the first day of the week, which we call that Sunday. I mean, they probably didn't call it Sunday Sunday, back then. That's what I meant to say. Yeah. I'm trying to you what I meant to say is on on Sunday. Every Sunday. That's right. I doubt they spoke English back then, so they probably didn't call it Sunday. But every first day of the week, we're going to come together. And eat the Lord's Supper with the church. You don't do that by yourself at home, but with the church and have preaching. Now, Matthew, most churches don't do that. They eat the, do the Lord's Supper once a month or once every three months or maybe once a year. But if we're going to follow the Bible, how often are we going to eat the Lord's Supper, Matthew, according to this verse? Every Sunday. Every week. That's right. Every week has a first day in it, so we're going to do it every first day of the week, every Sunday. Matthew, I appreciate your call. And thank you for answering my question, and that helped me out a lot. Have a good night. Same to you, Matthew. So last week we were talking about how that we're not under the Old Testament law anymore. We're under the New. Specifically, we mentioned the Sabbath a couple of times, the seventh day of the week, and how that's specifically mentioned in Colossians 2 as being one of the laws that were blotted out and nailed to the cross Romans 7, 4 through 7, basically says the Ten Commandments are no longer binding. Instead, we're under the New Testament. Uh, the New Testament is our law for today. It says things like don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, but it doesn't say to keep the Sabbath, so we don't have to keep the Sabbath anymore. Instead, we've just seen two passages, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, and Acts 20, verse 7, that show us that we should meet t- together as a church on the first day of the week, not the seventh day of the week. If you have a Bible question or comment, give us a call at 877-655-6755. The lines are wide open, so you can give me a call, 877-655-6755. That's why 
the congregation I worship with, we meet together every first day of the week and have a collection. And if we meet on Monday through Friday, for example, for a revival or a gospel meeting, whatever you want to call it, we won't take a collection on those days because it's the first day of the week. And we meet together every Sunday, every first day of the week to partake of the Lord's Supper. We won't, if we meet on Monday through Friday, we won't do the Lord's Supper on those days because it's the first day of the week. I mean, it's not the first day of the week. But we're going to do that every Sunday. We're trying to follow 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, and Acts 20, verse 7. So every Sunday we come together to have a collection, to have preaching, to eat the Lord's Supper. I know most churches don't do that, but look at Acts 20, verse 7. Shouldn't each church be partaking of the Lord's Supper every first day of the week if we're going to follow that verse? You know, during the Old Testament days, it was they were told to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, it didn't say remember every Sabbath, but they understood every time a Sabbath rolled around that it, they better keep that Sabbath or they wouldn't be following that command. It's the same day with the first day of the week. Every week has a first day in it, so the congregation should come together every first day of the week and have the Lord's Supper. And if the congregation you're with only does it once a month or once every three months or once a year, I think you need to be looking for another congregation because they're keeping you from following this approved example that we read in Acts 20, verse 7, eating the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. Joe from Spokane, Washington, go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Hey, just questioning really quick on, I know it's a little confusing for me, the New Testament, one of the Gospels where it's, uh, Jesus is saying, you know, not one jot, not one tittle of the law will be removed off, you know, from it until heaven and earth pass away. And then also, what one more spin on that, in the Gospels, he says uh, about the Pharisees to be careful to do everything they say to do. Well, in the law, well, the seat of Moses but don't live like them because they're vipers. And that's my extent of the question. They were they were hypocrites. Let's go to that passage you mentioned, Joe, in Matthew 5. Let's read 17 and 18. Jesus says there, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now I want you to remember what it said there. That says that Jesus came to fulfill that law, right? The Old Testament law. Joe, doesn't it say that? He came not to destroy, but to fulfill, right? Right. And so, so if Jesus accomplished what he came to do, that means he accomplished fulfilling that Old Testament law. You agree? Uh, he accomplished, yeah. I, well, yeah, yeah. He, he, he did. He, he was he was demonstrating or doing them, but yeah, yeah. He he came I, to fulfill it. Therefore, he did fulfill it because he accomplished what he came to do. Now let's read verse eighteen. It says, okay. "For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law." Till all be fulfilled. So verse 18, Jesus is saying, not one jot or tittle will pass from the law till it's fulfilled. We just got through saying he came to fulfill it. So that means once he fulfilled it, which is what he came to do, then the law would pass. Do you follow what I'm saying, Joe? Yeah, and I, I, the only parts I get confused on are, like I said, he, you know, he turns and he says to the crowds and his disciples. And I'm on the, I'm on the road right now. Sorry, I'm hands free, but uh, it's like I don't have my Bible to reference. But I, I'm certain, you know, um, he says, you know, to listen to the, you know, listen to the teachers of the law, but don't live like them. And he's telling everybody, and and you know, it was some, something somebody brought up to me that I felt was a good kind of a stump moment was, yeah, why would he tell? 
the people to listen to the, the teachers of the law if he was coming to dismantle it. Yeah, because because what he was saying, Jesus, it says, Colossians 2.14 says he nailed the law to the cross. So the law did not cease being binding until Jesus died. So the three years that Jesus was in his mem- in his um in his uh, ministry, those three years, he was careful to tell those Pharisees and any other Jew that you better keep the law of Moses during these three years because that law is still binding. That's why he would tell them to keep the law of Moses because it was still binding until he died. It was still binding when he was out there teaching. That's exactly why he did that. Kevin from Delaware, go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Thank you, sir. Great show. Thank you for your pastoral Anyway, my question is forgiveness and forgetfulness. How do I forgive somebody from doing something wrong to me? And I just have a hard time accepting it. If I forgive them, I don't understand it. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, you mentioned about forgiving and forgetfulness. Okay. Sometimes it's... Sometimes it's hard to forget something. We, we need to do our best to forget. But we can forgive while we're working on forgetting it. We can forgive. Let me, let's turn, if you don't mind, Kevin, I'm going to turn to Luke 17, verse 3, and show you what forgiveness means. In Luke 17, verse 3, it says, Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. So, Kevin... Forgiving another person means that you quit holding that sin against them. You quit rebuking them. You see, as long as if they've sinned against you and they hadn't repented, then as you have opportunity, you should rebuke them because you love their soul. And until they repent, they're not going to be right with God and they can't be saved. So you rebuke them because you want them to repent so they can be forgiven by God. Once they repent, then it's your obligation to quit rebuking them. And to forgive them, they don't need rebuking anymore once they've, once they've repented because God has forgiven them. You quit rebuking them. And you work on forgetting it, but sometimes that's hard. But what you can control while you're working on that is you quit rebuking them. You quit holding that sin against them in that sense. Does that make sense, Kevin? It's a, does that mean I don't stick the straw in their eye anymore? You don't do what? It Stick what in their eye anymore? The straw. Yeah, if you're referring to about, about judging in Matthew chapter 7, 1 through 4, yeah, that's what it means. It means you don't keep criticizing them for that sin because they're not committing anymore. They've repented. For, for example, okay. here's a man who has a problem with alcohol and he gets drunk, but he repents of that and he completely gives up alcohol. We need to forgive that person, and that means we need to quit criticizing him for drinking because he's not drinking anymore. He's he's repented of it. He's been forgiven by God. We don't rebuke him or criticize him for drinking anymore because he's not doing it anymore. He's repented. He's been forgiven by God, and, and that's what we need to do. That's what it means, Kevin. Appreciate your call. Thank you very much, sir. Any Any other questions, Kevin? No, sir, besides well, the fact that you have a great ministry, and I appreciate you listening every Sunday. Thank you for listening, Kevin. We appreciate it. I'm sure we're going to have to go off the air in a minute. Let me mention uh, to my callers, about three or four weeks ago, I started offering 
to do Bible studies with people. Now, I can't come to your house. This is a national radio program, so unless you live in near Huntsville, Alabama, I can't come to your house, but I can study with you over the phone. And the way this normally works, if you have email, I send you an outline ahead of time via email, and then we we agree upon a time I'm going to call you, and we have a one-hour Bible study over the phone. We talk about the verses on that outline. So if you're interested in having a phone Bible study with me, we can do it just about any time it's convenient for you, a one-hour phone Bible study. I want you to go to my website, BibleCrossFire.com, and you can click on the icon there that says ask for a Bible study or send me a message, and you can ask for the Bible study. Or you can call me. I'm going to give you my cell phone number, 256-682-9753. If you would like to have a one-hour phone Bible study with me sometime when it's convenient for you through the week, a one-hour phone Bible study, give me a call or text me, 256, let me say it again, the number to call or to text is 256 682 9753 256682 9753